0: Miss the show, no worries. On point and on the podcast, Canadian vets are digging into their own pockets to do the job that the Trudeau government won't. Why won't this government act faster to save these Afghan interpreters from the grips of the Taliban? Indigenous voices speak out. They don't want any more talk. They want the walk on all these promises made by government. And many are not at all amused that the prime minister used their sacred land to take a picture for his political gain. And the big cleanup continuing in Barrie, but the heaviest of the lifting happens when the headlines fade and the cameras go away. And so where does that stand right now? Let's get talking.
1: Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul and faith.
2: This is On Point with Alex Pearson
3: on
1: Global News Radio.
3: How else can ordinary people like the ones here today
1: help? Uh, First of all, by having absolutely zero tolerance for anyone in any leadership position that plays up the politics of fear or division. Canadians massively rejected that in 2015, and we need to continue to remain vigilant uh, that in uh, various uh, rhetoric and, uh, and uh, dog-whistle politics and coded language, um, that we're calling out people who are encouraging Canadians to be divided as opposed to pulling together.
4: What
0: planet is he on? No politician drums up division more than Justin Trudeau. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, July 20th. Enjoying a little bit of a uh, thunderstorm overhead right now in the downtown Toronto area. So uh, thank you, Mother Nature, for watering the plants now that I don't have time to water. So that is happening in our world here, and uh, we'll keep an eye to the sky because there's a bit of weather that could be hitting the province in uh, different areas over the next couple of hours. As Anthony Fernell uh, just explained, had a very busy day, of course, starting with this... um, You know, another billionaire going into space. And of course, I don't know if it was lost on anyone, but Bezos did it in what I felt was a pretty phallic-shaped rocket. I mean, maybe it's a bit of a subliminal sword fight between billionaires who seem to be trying to outdo each other's rocket. And a lot of people are offended about this, you know, saying it's a waste of money. Well, frankly, I don't care how billionaires spend their money. I do care if I have to subsidize it, but uh, we will talk about whether or not, um, is this an actual space splurge? Like, is this going to be an actual investment into our future when it comes to space travel for all the little people, or is this just rich people doing what rich people do, just play with the rockets? So we'll talk about that a little bit later in uh, the show. The prime minister added again today and uh, this time campaigning in Hamilton on our dime for an election. Of course, he insists he doesn't want, you know, this guy could not leave his cottage for over a year. You know, we had no functioning parliament. All, you know, using the excuse of COVID. And now he's out every day making speeches and dropping bags of money in vote rich ridings. And, you know, it'd be nice if if someone could call him on this in one of these scrums although it wouldn't really matter because he wouldn't answer anyway. He did get one question on, like, when you call in the election, and then all you, go, all you get back are these polished talking points, and today's talking point was, you know, we're a government doing all this work, and we're building back better, which I, th- right then I was like, this is going to be the most insufferable election once it happens. It is going to be nonstop talking points that, like, blur every single day. But really, the bulk of his press conference had nothing to do with his government's housing announcement. He just went on and on and on about his intolerance to racism and fighting Islamophobia. Albeit, when he does talk about racism, I I just simply can't take him seriously. I mean, I just can't. It was but a couple of years ago when he was caught doing numerous... You know, renditions of blackface uh, that he remembers. So I just, he's no authority on this issue. But it was clear to me from the presser that once again, his weapon of choice in the election will be playing this very robust game of identity politics. And so, you know, he spent the morning in Hamilton, starting off at a mosque, You know, and there he is shaking hands and kissing babies and using last week's incident where this mother and her daughter were targeted in a hate crime as the excuse to appear. And then he used this media appearance to, you know, go on and on and boast how his government fights hate, you know, basically insinuating his opponents, mainly the awful, evil, terrible Antichrist conservatives,
1: just fuel hate. What we've seen from the rise in intolerance and polarization and populism around the world over these past years is it's on all of us to continue to be vigilant, to listen to each other, to get to know each other, and to work together to build a better future. And a government, a government needs to lead on that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they need to lead, not stoke it. And the reason we have such polarization in this country today in politics today is thanks to politicians like Trudeau, who love to play identity politics and use, whether it's abortion or any other wedge issue, and in this case it's Islamophobia, to score political points. And the Muslim vote is an enormous opportunity for Trudeau because there are over a million Muslims in Canada, which is why he is spending so much time pandering to this vote. There's an appearance on you know, Hamilton today and Brampton yesterday. Um, you know, but... If he's really fighting hate and racism, then his priority, and you'd hear more from him on issues like anti-Semitism, which is the fastest growing hate crime in the world, but we don't. And maybe that's because there are only 270,000 Jews in Canada. And then, you know, even though it's the largest voting bloc in Canada, either Trudeau doesn't care about the Christian vote these days, or he just assumes he's going to get it no matter what. Otherwise, why is he not speaking out against all these church burnings? And the latest church to be absolutely destroyed was a uh, Coptic Christian church in Surrey, B.C. on Monday. So, you know, in the last few weeks, more than 15 churches have either been completely destroyed or vandalized in this country. And hardly a word of condemnation has come from the guy preaching in Hamilton about hate and the need for leadership and pulling together. Because I assure you, if 15 mosques burned, let alone one, he would not be so quiet. There's not a chance. But he's not even asked about it. All we got about two weeks ago was a short statement, and that's it. In, in fact, I listened to it again today, and as soon as he condemned the act... He then turned around and said, well, I, you know, we understand why it's happening. What prime minister makes an excuse for criminal arson? So I don't know where, where his leadership is on that front beyond me, but apparently no one cares. And that's why he gets away with it. But speaking of playing politics with these issues and creating divide, um, Green leader Anime Paul basically called Trudeau on it today tweeting at him that he failed to invite the country's first and only Jewish leader to take part in this one-day anti-Semitism summit Trudeau's hosting Wednesday. So why wasn't she invited? And for the record, Aaron O'Toole was also left off the invite list, and he's been asking for an invite uh, for several weeks now. So if you're wondering just how sincere Trudeau is in solving hate, racism, Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, and all this division that his identity politics has created... In Canada when he actually stops using it for political gain then I guess we'll know nonetheless as I said world's most insufferable election campaign heading our way I'll put money on it right
1: now many of them uh, are now at great risk because of gains that the Taliban is making in Afghanistan that is why we are working with partners on the ground, we are working with Canadian veterans, we are working uh, with different organizations and uh, with uh, communities in Afghanistan to be able to provide uh, safety uh, and, uh, and uh, coming to Canada for many of them and their families. As I said, this is something that uh, we take very seriously and that we are working diligently and aggressively on.
0: Well, good to have you here on this Tuesday. The question I have is, what is the holdup? You know, why is it taking the Trudeau government so long to do the right thing? In fact, they don't seem to be doing much at all to help the plight of Afghan interpreters whose lives are on the line, literally, because the Taliban's now actively hunting those who they see as traitors because they were helping coalition forces during the Afghan conflict. So they are infidels. And um, these are the interpreters who are on the front lines with our troops fighting the Taliban and are now being hunted by the same Taliban, and yet we've done nothing to bring these people here. And so what happens when the government does nothing? Well, leave it up to some Canadian vets to take it upon themselves to dig into their own pockets and help these interpreters get into safe havens. But bottom line is, time is running out. And of course, since the United States said it was pulling its troops out, the Taliban has uh, just gotten more aggressive and right now control 80% of Afghanistan. So in other words, there are not a lot of places for these interpreters to hide. Retired Corporal Robin Rickards joins me now. Good to have you.
3: Thanks for for having me on, Alex. I appreciate it.
0: You co-founded this grassroots effort called Not Left Behind. And that's basically because the government's done nothing um, to get these Afghan interpreters to safety. And so vets now have to do it for them. And, And so far... You guys have been able to finance a safe transfer of twenty million, uh, twenty families in just the last few days. But what is it about this government that they won't move faster, even though they do say they are planning?
3: So, look. First off, I want to I want to point out a couple of things. Um, this is a really decentralized uh, group of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, out Left Behind is one aspect. There are other there are other organizations as well as well as private individuals. So. There have been people who've been helped by their by their own friends, independent of what we did to to get their families to safety and out of harm's way. Um, And I I also want to point out something else that's a bit of a misnomer. Um, Mm -hmm. Taliban, the Taliban and the force in Afghanistan aren't drawing artificial distinctions between interpreters and other workers. And and I think that that's a real concern that I have going forward with the Trudeau government and a lot of the, the media attention that's been put on this. It's as though. It's as though they're they're not going to harm the the plumbers and the uh, the cooks and the electricians that helped us there. Uh, those people are very much at risk, um, and so we need to uh, we need to consider that as uh, as well, and we need to expand to uh, to talk about Afghan workers who assisted the uh, the mission. So that's the uh, the first thing that I'd like to point out with regards to what's happening. Look. Uh, You know, there's been a lot of monitoring the situation closely on the ground Um, that only goes so far. Eventually, there's a requirement to act because uh, people's lives are in risk. As more and more time goes on, the opportunity for people to get to safe locations becomes more challenging. And so there were there were a number of families who it was felt uh, by a group of us that were in very real peril of being cut off and trapped. So we acted to help those families find a way to get to a safe location where they could bide some time until the government figures out exactly what it's going to do and how to do it. And and I want to point out, I mean, you know, Minister Mendicino uh, is in your listening area and and he's Mm -hmm. been aware of the situation since he became minister. And Minister Hussein, who was his predecessor, who also mm-hmm. represents a riding in your area, was aware of this for the past four years. Anyways, they have been aware of the dangers. They have been explicitly shown uh, information that demonstrates the risk these people are at. It is only now that they're choosing to uh, to act. And you know, I, personally, I find it unacceptable, but, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's unfortunately the prerogative they have as ministers.
0: Right. And, and of course, now that we're in election time that apparently no one wants, um, they are uh, now saying whatever needs to be heard. And, that, and so, you know, when asked the immigration minister says, well, there's a plan. We're going to accept 45 embassy staffers, 40 interpreters and their families. So he's talking about 235 people, but, To your point, there are more people who need our help, um, you know, who are under threat of the Taliban. Um, And and when they say that they're going to help without a date or any actual official details, these words mean absolutely nothing. And it's not like time is on the side of these people. The Taliban doesn't exactly wait. They just come in and kill you. Sure. Um, And,
3: you know, as we've sort of evolved this conversation here, uh, Alex, and I thank you for that. I point your listeners to what happened to Popeye, uh, who was sort of the, the camp mascot at uh, Camp Nathan Smith, the, the provincial reconstruction team camp back in 2011. I mean, we had sort of inherited him with the, uh, the camp. He would worked at the canning factory that was originally there for years, and he had, uh, he had built himself a small home mm-hmm. sort of adjacent to it uh, and stayed there after the Taliban took control of the area. And he was—he was just a general handyman around the place, filling the generators, changing the uh, the bulbs on our on our spotlights and whatnot—that sort of stuff—and just an affable guy. And you know what? The Taliban killed him for it. Yeah, family, yeah, Emily. Which gets to the other issue that's at hand here. You know, we've we've focused a lot of the conversation on the workers themselves, but you know, it's it's when you're listening to uh, to them talk. You know, I had one fellow who we helped get out, and he said, you know. When I told my kids that we were leaving, and I'm not going to talk about where they went to, we were going somewhere safer. He said they were crying. Mm. They were, they were crying. You know, I've got another fellow that we're helping. Um, he, he's talking with me earlier in the day because he's trying to to run a quick errand. Uh, he comes home and there's a gunfight in his neighborhood and he grabs his 18-month-old son and he's trying to get him to uh, to safety and he drops his son and his poor son's got this bleeding nose this bleeding lip this big gash on his head and you know i mean he's like i hate this situation is basically what he says please you know for the sake of my family mm-hmm. help us out right and and that's the that's the real personal cost because you know i'm sure there'll be some people that say you know well these guys chose to help us i mean whatever but you know their kids didn't right and their kids are gonna bear the cost of of what's happening and our inaction just as much as they are right Uh, in the best case they'll be orphans in the worst case they'll be a far worse fate
0: Right. And to your point, I mean, without their help, though, our, our Canadian troops, those on the front lines, uh, wouldn't have been able to navigate uh, such a rough terrain, I mean, impossible world. So, you know, it's it's one thing to say, well, they helped. I mean, they chose to help. Well, yes, they did. But without their help, Canada and our forces would have been in much, I think, m- more dire, dire straits trying to navigate this landscape. But, you know, this is getting attention, Robin, right around the world that, you know, Canada has abandoned people who helped us. Uh, It's not a good look.
3: No, and you know what? There's there's a tactical or a strategic consideration as well because this isn't 30 years ago where these these incidents didn't become known broadly, right? Everyone in the developing world has a mobile. This information travels around the world. It's easily accessible. They see what happens to people, how Canada treats people who uh, work for them when they're in danger. And it creates a it's going to create problems for the the next mission and you know that's why i find what happened recently with minister mendicino's recent announcements you look at minister mendicino's recent announcements they're they're, they're very political in nature and they're just they all are yeah up votes on the the left for the liberals by talking about you know a special class for 250 people of human rights defenders well he already has that power right mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. he's got that power under the act to grant permanent residency on an exceptional basis based on public policy or, uh, compassionate grounds. He's, and, and on the other side, he's talking about expanding, uh, parents and grandparents class because yeah. he's, he's going after that group of voters that shifts between the, the Tories and the liberals. Well, Afghans can't vote. Uh, right. Af- Afghan workers who helped us out can't vote. So their voices aren't being heard here. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, And, you know, the thing that gets me, the thing that gets me is given the exigencies of the circumstance, there is only so many resources to go around in the office. And the fact that he is dedicating these resources to putting press releases and public announcements out about election platform issues at a point in time where children are at risk of losing their parents um, really, really offends my sensibilities.
0: Let, let me ask you this, um, just because uh, I'm, I'm running up against the clock. I mean, the bottom line is when this government wants to move, it w- it will move when it's in their interest. We saw what they did with Syrian refugees. And so we know that if there's a will, there's a way, but there is no will here. So that, that's, that's just one thing I'll say. But how do people help if they want to help um, this grassroots effort of not you know, left behind?
3: You know what? The, the biggest thing that you can do right now to help, and, and I'm talking to a particular demographic that the Trudeau government has always craved. I'm talking about the the soccer moms in the in the 416 and the 905 area codes. Um, You know what? You need to call your liberal members and express that this is unacceptable because they are counting on your votes going into the election. And it needs to be clear to them that if they don't get all of these people who are at risk out, if they draw artificial distinctions, that there's going to be a consequence and that you're going to you're going to vote for someone else because you know what we need, we need a government that's um, in tough, like this isn't even a tough ethical decision. It isn't even a tough moral decision. And you know, I gotta give credit uh, where credit's due because my member of parliament is a liberal and he's been fighting his own government on this, Yeah. right? Um, And you know, it is what it is, but uh, I mean, at, at some point in time, Doing the right thing has to come before uh, craven political calculations.
0: Yeah. Well, look, bottom line, we'll stay on it. We'll have another conversation and we'll see if uh, the increased uh, media pressure um, gets them to act. Sadly, that's what it will take. Uh, Robin, thank you for your time. I appreciate it.
3: You know what, Alex? I I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me and I, I hope this helps us move the ball forward.
0: So do I, retired Corporal Robin Rickard, and the grassroots effort is called Not Left Behind. And if you ask me, it's simply about doing the right thing, which should be, you know, it should have been done a long time ago. But we'll, we'll stay on this and see where it goes.
4: Would you like to see criminal accountability?
1: What I want to see is secondary to what the communities need. We have to remember that reconciliation is not about us deciding what the right thing is for Indigenous communities. It's putting Indigenous communities, survivors, family members at the heart of it. And there are many who are calling for accountability and we will listen to them and we will work for them. There are others who want other ways of grieving and we will be with them and we will support them. Whatever they want is at the center of the way we move forward.
0: Well, what indigenous communities across this country really want is action. They want criminal accountability. They want historical wrongs righted. What they don't want is any more virtue signaling word salad from a prime minister who talks a really good game but doesn't actually get the ball into the end zone. And I was reading an interesting op ed in the National Post which punctuates this point. You know, pointing out that you know Trudeau ran on implementing all 94 of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's recommendation, but has only delivered eight. We still have reserves across the country with poisonous water. There's no housing built in many of these communities. Still, record numbers of Indigenous kids living in foster care. And now, of course, we have church burnings and growing tensions that threaten to further divide this country. As the article also points out. Kneeling on the graves of dead kids on sacred lands serves Trudeau's political purposes. It does nothing but actually disrespects reconciliation. Melissa Mabarki is a policy analyst and outreach coordinator of Indigenous policy programs at the McDonald laurier Institute. It is great to have you on the show.
4: Thanks for having me today.
0: You're actually Métis yourself and have done a lot of work on land claim rights that have helped your own First Nations community. I want to start, um, you know, with with your reaction, because when I saw the image of the prime minister holding a posed teddy bear kneeling on graves that, you know, we don't even know who, who is in those grounds, I really cringed. Has this image, you know, angered or offended those in First Nations communities?
4: I think what it did was it asked the question as to why this photo was taken in the first place. Because it's one thing to have an announcement that is going to greatly impact children today and allowing them to, you know, come home to their reserve. So this was a historical moment and I felt it was overshadowed. And a lot of people felt it was overshadowed by the prime minister kneeling beside a grave site. And, first of all just looking at this image i know that he didn't consult with the local community as to whether this was allowed or not because usually when we visit grave sites we offer tobacco we don't normally take a teddy bear and lay it you know next to a child that we don't know Um, so just looking at that image i knew he didn't ask and i knew that he didn't consult the community prior to taking this picture The second thing that kind of made a lot of people furious was the fact that it was being sold. It's being sold for $495 as like a memorabilia. You know, you shouldn't be um, making money off of such a horrific part of our history. Like nobody should be making money off of this. If anything, you should be on the ground working with these communities and trying to implement social and mental programs that will help these communities. You know, taking a picture is not going to change anything. And making your image as though you're helping Indigenous people is not helping anybody. You know, if anything, it's aggravating a lot more people than it is helping. And this is where we're starting to see the divide because you Mm -hmm. see a political party going one way and then you have Indigenous people who are asking, you know, for respect and you know for consultation on what they need Um, so you know it it, it kind of it, it kind of triggered a lot of people seeing that and it did for myself you know seeing that as well so I from my point of view it was very disrespectful and I think you should have consulted that community before taking that picture.
0: Yeah, I mean, you would assume that a prime minister who has um, made so many promises to indigenous groups in this country, you would think that they would uh, know that up front to do that. And I will point out Scott Moe, premier, also did a picture. I'm not sure he sold it, but again, very distasteful. And as far as I'm concerned, no political leader of any stripe, of any level of government, should be going on to sacred lands on such a, a sensitive topic and sensitive issue. Um, and such a raw issue uh, to score political points. It's just so cringeworthy uh, to me and I think many other Canadians that it does more damage. Um, The main point of your your op-ed, though, was about all this symbolism and virtue signaling. And, you know, we hear good good words and, and all this talk. But they result in very little. I mean, the prime minister ran on reconciliation. He made a lot of very big promises to Indigenous groups in this country. And as you point out, delivered on only eight. Uh, And at this pace, we won't have reconciliation till long after all of us are gone. I mean, if that's how slow they're going to move.
4: That's exactly true. Um, You know, they put these action plans into place for a reason. And they they come up with these action plans uh, by interviewing, you know, survivors or uh, people who have lost family members. And it took years to do that. Like my grandmother, who's now passed, was part of that process. And mm. it took a, it took a decade, you know, to to get through her claim, to get through her story like this was a very long and onerous process. That took a lot of time from the Indigenous people, and it also took a time, a lot of time from these committees that undertook it. So to look at it six years later and only see eight of those action items, um, and a lot of them were pretty recent, you know, like having a National Day of Mourning for, you know, residential school children. Like, that just happened within the last month and a half, you know. And mm-hmm. it, it, it's stuff like this that... Why Why did it take so long, you know, and why did it take a tragedy for us to get here? Why couldn't we be slowly working through these action items in the last six years and, and get at least half of them done and, you know, mm-hmm. at least make some progress so that we can see, yes, you know, there was some tangible work that was done and there was some, you know, items that we accomplished, you know, to give us a sense of solidarity. Like we, you know, we, we did this, but that's not what we're seeing. We're seeing how everything was piecemealed, and it only came about if it suited someone's image, and that's very disheartening.
0: Yeah, and, and I think it it fuels the division we're seeing in this country because all we get is the talk. Uh, we what we don't get from governments is the walk. It's it's the heavy lifting. I do find it interesting, and and you know the the just last week in Saskatchewan, the Coesas First Nation had reached an agreement with the federal and provincial government. And this is what we talk about when we're talking about tangible changes. You know, they're taking control of the child welfare system. And so not only did they get support and funding from both levels of government, that's going to happen over the next two years. This is a big issue in Indigenous communities is the fact that, okay, the kids aren't going to residential schools, but by far and large, there's still too many of them in foster care. That's a change that should have been made a long time ago and could have been made a long time ago.
4: And it it shouldn't be a change that's happening one community at a time like it should right, be a change right, right. it should be a change that's happening one province at a time you know let's let's get everybody on board if we're going to do one community let's see how many we have in this province and let's just get a like a general consensus of this is how this is going to be handed off and this is a step in the right direction because we do want to take care of our children and if you look at the statistics 60% of the children in care are indigenous you know, that's mm. a very high and alarming rate of children in care. So this sure. is a, an issue on a national level that should have been addressed, addressed on a national level and not just on a com- one community at a time. If we're going to do this one community at a time, well, we have 645 out there. You know, how yeah. long is it going to take us to get everybody on board? So these are some of the things that he could have looked at on a larger scale and said, OK, what kind of program do we need? to hand this off to First Nations communities. And that could have been one of the biggest steps in reconciliation that the Prime Minister could have taken. And if you look at the amount of time it took Cowes' First Nation to actually get to this point, it took years. Work like this almost takes a decade to do. So when the Chief talks about, you know, like there were a lot of hard conversations and it wasn't easy, That's exactly what we encounter every single day. You know, like, and it ranges from everything. It's not just one area of government. It's everything even down to water. You know, it it, it took my community seven years to get clean water. It should not take that long to fix a simple filtration system.
0: And so what does this election then look like? I mean, there isn't a indigenous voice out there. Canadians are paying attention. Um, But, you know, I don't think it's going to cut it anymore to hear just the promises. I mean, it's clear that First Nations groups in this country want the thumb of government taken off of them. Uh, This is going to take some leadership from somebody, and I'm
4: not sure that we're going to see that in this election. We may not see it in this coming election. I think what's happening right now is that, you know, the public, the Canadians, they're, they're being exposed to something that was generally kept quiet. Like, we never heard about residential schools until these graves were found, you know, and, mm. and that opens that discussion. So there's going to be other things that are going to open up the eyes of people, and, and they're going to look at it and say, okay, why wasn't this done? Like, why is this taking so long? And once right. we start kind of pulling back those layers, we can start seeing where we can actually fix things And where we can, you know, start the reconciliation process with First Nations communities, like we can say, you know, this First Nation lives next door to me, you know, how can I help them with their water issues? There's something in my county that, you know, we can tie these, this reserve into. So, you know, we have to get those discussions happening, because without them, you know, we're never going to come up with solutions. And I think what's happening now is that. We're starting to see the deficiencies, you know, like we're starting to see what's not working. And hopefully, you know, if we all work together on this, we can we can get it working to where we're not having to wait years for any kind of change, where if we have a water problem, it's fixed within that year and we're done. Gee, in
0: 2021, you would think that the basics uh, would be delivered by now. But nonetheless, here we are still talking about it. Melissa, I really appreciate your time on this, and I'd love to have you back to continue the conversation. So I I hope you'll uh, come back with us, and I thank you.
4: Awesome. Well, I'll definitely be happy to come back. Just uh, send me an invite, and I'll be here
0: consider it done.
4: That is Melissa Mubarki, who
0: uh, is uh, in charge of Indigenous policy programming in, and a number of other jobs at the McDonald laurier Institute, and we will, in fact, definitely have her back.
2: So I knew the house was probably hit pretty hard, but um, I had no idea that I was going to walk upstairs and see the sky, and the entire second floor is pretty much
1: gone. Well, sorry, the, the second floor of your house is completely gone?
2: Yeah, pretty much gone. There's no roof. Um, there's no back of
0: the house. There you go. And uh, that was just a few days ago. And that was Natalie Harris's voice um, chatting with our Alan Carter. And she was the one who looked up at the blue sky just minutes after tornadoes had touched down in Barrie and realized the reason she was seeing this guy is because her home had been destroyed. And so the cleanup is well underway in Barrie, but there's still 71, which is actually a much higher number than I thought. But 71 homes have been deemed uninhabitable. And um, this, of course, was the big story dominating airways, you know, on Thursday and Friday. But this headline will fade. And for a lot of these people out of homes, this is just like the start of months of pain. Natalie Harris is Barrie City Councilor for Ward 6. She's also become kind of a face of, um, of this near tragedy, certainly uh, the destruction. She joins us now. Good to have you. Thank you so much for having me. So we're a few days away from, from this particular event. Um, how are you feeling these, you know, these moments? How are people feeling now that the shock has kind of exposed itself to reality?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think that some people have finally been able to uh, get a lot of the cleanup done. Uh, to be specific, 108 tons of tornado debris has been moved right. to a landfill in Barrie. Um, and then now we're able to um, kind of get Uh, You know, closer to finding answers from insurance companies, etc. But it's going to be a long journey for so many people with respect to um, mental health and, and different relief that they'll still need for maybe even over a year.
0: Yeah, and this comes, of course, when, you know, we've already been through 16 months of hell with this pandemic, Mm -hmm. and people are tired, exhausted, mentally, you know, drained, and so now they're dealing with this. And I think, you know, it's a big headline, it's a big story, but the cameras do leave, and and I think a lot of people forget that there's a lot of track left on this uh, for those who are living in Barrie and so what what are you seeing I mean as far as I know your house was hit particularly hard certainly your your son who was uh could have been in his bedroom which no longer exists it could have been a much worse um, scenario than than what we're talking about now but what is the situation where where are people like you living
2: yeah, so just to be uh, very clear, it's my ex's house. Um, I was there visiting. I'm there all the time. He, and my son's there and my dogs are there. Um, so, But I, of course, live close by. But yeah, it's um, my my ex, John, who is actually a paramedic in Peel region. It's his home. Um, so there's yeah. a lot of things that are still happening right now to help the community. Um, one of the things is on July 22nd, we have a community event, uh, event to support mental health. And that will be for kids and adults. Um, And then people are still continuously reaching out and asking where they can make uh, monetary donations and donations of other things. And they can still do that by visiting salvationarmy.ca. And if you are in the Bay Area, you can drop off uh, monetary donations to the location on 16 Bayfield Street. Um, But, you know, we still have a ways to go. We're still kind of unwrapping the onion to see what else even needs to happen as um, we haven't even really... um, gotten down to the core of how many for sure homes and what kind of extent they are going to be need with repairs one of the things we're definitely looking for is long-term housing Mm long-term rentals that's quite difficult right now for people Um, in fact John who is my son's dad is staying at a hotel not even in the city of Barrie he's staying in a hotel in Newmarket because they're so full there's that many people that were displaced from their homes jeez
0: wow yeah it, it's uh it's quite something of just how this displaces because you know, in your case, you know everyone just kind of gets scattered and uprooted from where they they are used to and um out of house and home and and anybody who's been through a renovation knows it's never a fast process, so right. just imagine having to rebuild an entire community and, and all these houses it it could take a very long time, and I have to think. That there will be those, even though the province said it's going to step in and help make up for shortfalls here, there will be people that don't come back to this community or can't rebuild.
2: Absolutely. I think that's a very high likelihood. A lot of the reason for that as well is just the trauma that's associated with being in the area. I know that I went back and so did John the next day to the site and it was just so overwhelming and emotional because to be honest, it looks like a movie scene. It doesn't, yeah. it's very, very difficult to process that this happened in a matter of seconds and the entire community was destroyed. But um, the city of Barrie has really come together to make sure that there's so much support for the community. Um, people can al- also go to serviceberry at barry.ca to be added to the list um, if you want to offer any type of assistance whatsoever and they can go to Barry.ca forward slash tornado recovery for a whole host of information, uh, frequently asked question answered uh, and those types of things. But it's it's an ever evolving situation for sure. But man, the community has so come together Uh, tremendously my son uh, is 15 and he wants to be Mm. a police officer that's his (laughs) dream and I've been inundated with uh, responses from different services from all over the world even from the UK to send my son crests and challenge coins and anything that'll bring a smile to his face so there's no lack of support that's for sure
0: yeah and that is really touching um uh, no question about it the uh The soul needs just as much help right now, certainly, Mm. as, uh, you know, anything else. Um, You know, and it's interesting, I mean... Barrie is this place that gets hit by tornadoes. I mean, obviously, everyone knows the 1985 tragedy, um, which was the worst of them. But I mean, over the years, it it is an area that is prone uh, to tornadoes, which is, I mean, probably why uh, the response was just so fast uh, in, in this particular case. Is there a learning lesson here? I mean, you know, I mean, does this make the, you know, Barry even better prepared for the next time? Because uh, chances are there will be a next time. Absolutely.
2: Well, actually, um, I'm bringing a motion forward to City Council on August 9th uh, and working with the Institute for Catastrophic Loss Reduction to hopefully uh, approach the province to change the building code where um, uh, things such as hurricane straps are added to buildings that are in Ontario, mostly central Ontario, where it is prone for tornadoes. Yeah. Um, so uh, there are a lot of other things that, that are recommended in the motion as well. But uh, these straps are about a dollar each and they're very economical and um with the 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 tornadoes that usually hit central ontario are usually f0 to F two, and this was an f2 in barry and these straps are very um um they they secure the roof quite well and and obviously i'm very interested in learning more about this and bringing this forward to our city because uh the roof was ripped right off of john's house and my son's room was upstairs
0: yeah, and, and and had this been at night, um, you know, it's just that one tiny investment that could uh, stave off so much damage, not to mention injury. Um, just quickly before I let you go, uh, Natalie, what is the greatest need right now for those who are um, out of house and home in Barrie?
2: Yeah, to be honest, it's it's uh, short-term rentals, which is kind of wow. a hard thing to to make happen so if people do have that possibility or availability for families please just reach out to Barry um, call the city, go online barry.ca and reach out to the services there to hopefully find some other homes. That's really the main thing right now. Um, We still have a lot of different um, resources that are available on scene, bins that are free for people to dispose of debris Um, fees are waived until July 23rd at the landfill to bring that uh, you know and, and the school which is close by, which was used for a location for donations, still has supplies. They have clothing, they have food, they have toiletries, everything that anyone would need. So we're really good with that. Um, But long-term rentals is number one, I think, right now is what I'm hearing.
0: Yeah, and uh, and to keep people in in our thoughts, um, you know, as these headlines fades. Well, look, Natalie, I uh, appreciate you coming on because you're doing double duty these days. You know, you've got to put your counselor hat back on, just kind of get back yeah. in the trenches and keep working. But I know you've got a lot on your plate dealing with the personal side of this as well. So we appreciate you joining us.
2: Anytime. Thank you so much.
0: That is Natalie Harris, who is a Barrie City Councillor for Ward 6 and clearly has her work cut out for her. Uh, but nonetheless, Barrie.ca, if you want to pitch in and give any kind of help. All right, that wraps up this Tuesday here. Charlie Adler will take you forward on Global News Radio 640 Toronto and our sister station, Global News Radio CFPL in London. I thank you. I thank my team. Let us see what Wednesday's conversation brings our way here on Point. This is Alex Pearson.
1: You're listening to Global News Radio.